audio check. On this episode, we talk about sickle cell disease, taking care of our patients with pain, and the opioid crisis. Hope you enjoy. Hello everyone, this is RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waith, and today I have with me Dr. William Amarkway. William, pleasure to have you on here. Yeah, pleasure to be on here. Thank you so much for uh, having me on your show. This is great, and um, I, I followed some of your um, your YouTube videos and some of the topics you're talking about, and I'm really um, excited to kind of dive into the things that you're passionate about. But before we do that, can you just start off by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes, so um, I... Uh, went to pharmacy school over at University of South Florida in Tampa. Uh, go Bulls. <laughs> nice. And I graduated in uh, 2017 and uh, finally got licensed um, in June 2018. And uh, my first job actually as a pharmacist was um, a specialty um, pharmacist position. It was a contract position for about six months. And I really enjoyed that. I really got to. Um, understand, you know, the specialty market, which was pretty cool. Uh, but it was a contract position. So after the contract was up, I had to find another job. And I was fortunate to um, land my current position, which is um, a hospital pharmacist um, in the inpatient setting right now. So I'm really enjoying that and, and understanding the, the hospital side of uh, pharmacy. So it's been pretty cool. Yeah. So I, I follow, obviously, college football, and I saw that um, I don't think you guys did too great against UCF recently. I'm not sure how much you followed that, but uh, that wasn't yeah. the happiest of days <laughs> for you guys. <laughs> um, a quick question. You mentioned that you had a contract position. Can you give us some background as to like what that is? Um, because I'm not sure if a lot of people are familiar with how that might work and, um, yeah. and what that experience was like. Can you give us a little background yeah, about that? Definitely. So... Um, I went on Indeed, and basically there are um, recruiting companies that recruit you for um, certain, uh, you know, pharmacist positions. So I applied online, and they got back to me, and basically they wanted to um, see if I can work for this specialty company um, out in Orlando. So it was a contract position. They needed pharmacists for the disease season, so I was able to um, get a contract. Um, with the recruiting agency and basically go out to Orlando and work out there for um, six months. And it was pretty cool because they didn't need any prior experience. And because I was afraid, I was like, oh, do you need, you know, specialty pharmacy experience? And they yeah. said, no, they're willing to train you. So, you know, I was under contract for them for about six months. And then um, after the contract was up, then um, we were done with our position, basically. So, yeah, it's basically through a, a recruiting company and they're basically looking for, for pharmacists to fill certain positions, you know, whatever it may be. That's interesting because it's, it's actually sounds like an easy way to kind of get something on the CV and, and prove that you have exactly. experience. So that sounds exactly. awesome. Mm -hmm. So um, you're, you've been really passionate about uh, kind of patient advocacy, uh, specifically around dealing with pain and treating people with pain. And um, I wanted to know, like, what is it that, um, like, what led you to this passion to kind of uh, down this road to where you're at now, where you're kind of launching this kind of initiative where you're really trying to have be a voice um, for patients? Yes, definitely. So I think my passion kicked off during my um, fourth year um, rotations during pharmacy school. One of the um, hospital rotations that I had, 
um, kind of focused on pain management. So as a student, they wanted us to um, notate um, patients' pain scales and see if they were on the correct, um, you know, pain medication for their, you know, pain syndrome, whether it be, you know, neuropathic pain or, you know, whatever pain they had. So, you know, going through that kind of, you know, sparked my interest in understanding a little bit more about, you know, pain management. And, and then also growing up with my brother, he has um, sickle cell disease. So growing up, you know, watching him, you know, suffer through that condition and, you know, watching how that, you know, affected our family really, um, you know, sparked my passion even more. And then, you know, during the recent years, just watching him, how he's been treated um, in hospitals and in, um, you know, outpatient pharmacies. Um, just really even, you know, sparked my interest even more to be an advocate, not only for my brother, but for, you know, pain patients um, in general. Now, can you give us like, a, I guess like a, so th- as listeners know, this is not a clinical, <laughs> this is not a clinical podcast. If you want mm-hmm. clinical info, you can c- go to core consults podcast. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's not here. But uh, for for people that might not be too familiar with sickle cell, um, can you give uh, or pharmacists that haven't seen it in a while, can you give like just a quick overview as to like what it is um, and, and kind of what the usual treatments might be for it? Sure. So um, sickle cell disease is a um, genetic disorder and it basically is um, you get it from your parents and it has um, basically both copies of the hemoglobin S gene you get from both of your parents. And it's basically an umbrella term, sickle cell disease. So there's many subtypes under that. So you have sickle cell anemia, which is the most common uh, subtype. And basically you have the hallmark um, shape of the red blood cell, which is a sickle shape. And the reason that happened is because uh, due to the genetic issues that happen, you have a substitution in a certain amino acid that basically encodes for a sickle shape uh, red blood cell. So that can cause a lot of issues because the sickle shape of the red blood cell doesn't have oxygen in it, and then it can, you know, clump together in vessels, and then, you know, uh, patients can get what is called a sickle cell crisis. So my brother, you know, gets that a lot throughout the year, and basically the red blood cells are clumping together, they're getting lodged into vessels, and you can get, you know, pain in your joints and and, in a lot of areas of your body. So, um, you know, sickle cell disease is a very uh, painful condition, but, um, it is, you know, the, the hallmark, you know, red blood cell sickle shape that um, presents itself uh, from this disease. Gotcha. And, and basically, yeah. um, I know you were saying some common treatments. Um, whenever, you know, someone goes into um, the sickle cell crisis mode, um, some of the common treatments include, you know, obviously rehydration with IV fluids, um, blood transfusions, um, pain medications are also um, helpful. Um, some patients, you know, morphine dilated. Um, and then also hydroxyurea, which my brother is on, basically um, uh, helps with this condition as well. It basically just increases your um, fetal hemoglobin, which is inside your red blood cells, and it prevents it from, you know, sickling and going into that sickle shape. So mm-hmm. those are some, you know, common treatments with uh, sickle cell disease. This is actually really, you, you know, you had mentioned the crisis, and I, it, I have a memory that I was on rotations at a hospital and I was doing mm-hmm. HCAP rounds. So basically going and like asking every room on the floor, you know, if they had questions about their medications. And I remember I was mm-hmm. advised to not go into one room um, mm-hmm. because the person was in a, um, a crisis and like just in excruciating pain. 
right. um, as to a point where I just, you know, it wouldn't have been a, a good situation for me to go in and try to talk to them about, you know, asking what they know about their medications. And right. um, I just, and I'll, that just always stuck with me. So um, I'm really curious to know about, you'd mentioned the, you know, the kind of how, how it's impacted your family and the experiences you guys have gone through with this. Can you, can you give us some like insight into that? Yeah. Um, growing up, I mean, having my, my brother, you know, go into his crisis mode and, you know, having to go in the hospital, you know, throughout the years and just, you know, our family coming together and having to um, really care for him and really, you know, watch over him, you know, really impacted our family because, you know, you, you never want to see a family member, you know, suffering in excruciating pain like that. And it's really you know, hard sometimes whenever, you know, I have to, even recently, just having to take my brother or having to drive down to Orlando sometimes to um, see my brother because he's in the ER and he's just, you know, suffering in pain. So, um, you know, people out there with family members or people who are, you know, suffering themselves with with chronic pain issues definitely know, you know, how burdensome it can be um, for a family, um, especially you know, someone you love, you know, go seeing them, you know, face to face, go through that. So um, it was very impactful um, for our family growing up. And it, it's still impactful now because he he still has his, his crisis modes that he gets into. And, you know, having to, to see him go through that. He's a very strong individual. So he's he's, uh, you know, a really um, strong individual. So, yeah. Yeah. And what like has there been any um, issues with him? In, in pharmacy or have you, has he like meant gave you stories about him getting prescriptions at pharmacies or the way he's been maybe treated at some healthcare systems? Yeah. I mean, um, there's been times where, um, he's been in the hospital and, you know, he usually gets, you know, Dilaudid to help him with his pain. But, you know, there's a lot of times where he, he may go into the hospital after doesn't want to give him his pain medication. You know, there's been a lot of stories of, you know, sickle cell, patients, you know, um, physicians not believing, you know, that what they're going through is really painful, you know, but I'm a firm believer. And, you know, if we understand the condition properly, which, you know, a lot of people may not actually understand the condition properly, then you'll understand why that person is in pain. And um, just dealing with things like that in the hospital and then in outpatient pharmacies, I think there's a lot of stigma, unwanted stigma that goes against pain patients who legitimately use um, opioids. And there's an unwanted stigma against them, against abusing it and against, you know, all sorts of things. So I think he's had a lot of trouble, you know, getting his uh, medications from the pharmacies. And I was actually saying a little story in my uh, video that I posted. Um, you know, we recently went to um, his longtime pharmacy that he goes to and he came back from the ER. They had discharged him, you know, for his pain medications. And he went to his longtime pharmacy and they pretty much just dismissed him and told him to come back next week. And it was kind of disheartening because, you know, working in, in retail as an intern in the big, big box chains, you know, I, I understand some of the reservations that pharmacists have in filling, you know, prescriptions. But, you know, I think as pharmacists, we have to do our due diligence in, in making sure that the prescription is valid. And, and if a, a chronic pain patient comes in with a valid prescription, then we have to do our job in, in understanding, you know, why that patient is in pain what kind of condition they have and, and why they should, you know, be able to fill it. And it, it was just disheartening, you know, seeing him dismiss the part the pharmacist didn't even ask him, you know, how are you doing? I know it's painful. So we, we had to go to another pharmacy and, you know, we explained to that pharmacist what's going on. And the pharmacist was like, you know, I understand what you're going through. Sickle cell is, 
um, you know, very painful. I'll be, I'll be happy to fill your, your prescriptions for you. And it was just about 12 pills. It wasn't, you know, some exorbitant amount. So it was just enough to hold him over until he got to his hematologist. So, you know, situations like that have increased my, my passion for, for advocacy in, in this, you know, subset. Of, uh, yeah, it's, it sounds like that pharmacist that, you know, especially if it's, you know, a, a small prescription like 12 pills, mm-hmm. that pharmacist was probably either overly cautious, uh, potentially even a floater or someone that just, mm. you know, wasn't, um, uh, uh, you know, obviously not familiar with who your brother might have been, um, which right. which definitely sucks. You know, I mean, and I think right. every pharmacist that's either been a floater or or is new or has been worried about the potential where they might have searched the, um, you know, E-Force or, or the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the PDMP. Right. Um, to find that th- they had just gotten it maybe in the hospital and, and are concerned. So I, I think that it is definitely a very hard situation to deal with right. being that obviously that seems like a legitimate yeah. prescription, but then for a pharmacist to turn it away, most likely due to like over caution because um, right. being that it was probably a legitimate prescription. Um, so it's exactly. definitely difficult. Um, what do you like? in your advice and, and kind of like what you've, your messaging as to what you've been giving healthcare professionals. I mean, what are you thinking that uh, healthcare professionals can kind of do better in taking care of people in these situations or people that do have right. pain? I think the best thing to do is, you know, just, just like farm pharmacists get to know, you know, all different sorts of patients, you know, patients who come back from the ER with a heart attack or a stroke and they need their, you know, post medication management. I think that we have to have that same passion towards chronic pain patients. I think that, you know, pharmacists, especially in the retail setting, should get to know their pain patients, get to know their pain condition, get to know, you know, what type of condition they have. So, you know, when when you see the pain patient come into the pharmacy, you'll um, know that they're not faking or because I've heard stories of pharmacists saying, you know, oh, you're just faking. You know, why are why are you on such a high dosage? And, you know, if you actually understand their condition, if you get to know their doctor, maybe if you see a script that is, is kind of, you know, a, a red flag, maybe you can call their pain management doctor and build a rapport with him so you can understand that, you know, this is the dosage that they've been stable on for however many years. And so I, I think my advice, I'm a big, you know, firm believer in pharmacists getting to know their patients, getting to know their doctor, having that collaborative agreement having that collaborative practice. It doesn't just have to be in a clinic setting. I think it can be in a retail setting too. You can have that, you know, um, great relationship between the doctor and between um, the patient as well. So I think communication is key and just, you know, the the pharmacist understanding about your patients, understanding what the the patient has. And I think it, it will go a long way and it will make, um, you know, chronic pain patients feel a lot better when they come to the pharmacy and, and they're not feeling like they're in an antagonistic, you know, relationship with the pharmacist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's a hard, it's a hard line to play on too, because I mean, I, I have experience in, in community pharmacy and, you know, mm-hmm. a, a lot of times you can kind of feel things are getting a little dangerous potentially, or doses are right. either increasing or, or there's no, um, you know, and I don't think I've ever had a patient that I can recall where I specifically knew that they had um, sickle cell. But in other types mm-hmm. of pain um, situations, you know, there's times where certain doses are either too much or they should be mm-hmm. on something more um, long lasting, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that becomes difficult because you end up calling the, you try to call the doctor 
And then right. the doctors, you never actually talk to them directly. It's always exactly. you know a staff exactly. kind of communicating. So it, it really is a very difficult um, situation. But I, I do think though that you know if someone is documented to have sickle cell, I think you know it's obviously every pain is every type of pain is important. But I mean I think it's a very unique situation when someone is um, in that particular has that particular diagnosis. Now what right, exactly. what what are the pain? Um, what are those prescriptions usually like in terms of managing pain, like uh, after um, in the outpatient setting, I guess, for, for someone that might have sickle cell disease? So like what, what type of prescriptions would normally your brother have to get filled that might potentially mm-hmm. cause issues at the pharmacy? Um, it, it depends. Sometimes um, the, his hematologist may, you know, write a 30 day script or maybe write, you know, a 90 day script. You notice that maybe sometimes the the ninety day prescriptions kind of you know have reservations as far as filling it. Um, I think it's a lot of the times you know you you see a prescription for a narcotic and and you look at the the amount maybe it's like what one hundred and eighty or you know what have you and you just see the amount and 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 you get you know kind of reserved about filling it because you think that it's you know too much. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, more. Um, on the 90 day supply side, I think it's, it's kind of hard as well. When, when he gets his you know, 30 day prescriptions and stuff like that filled, it, I think it, it's kind of easier for my brother to get, you know, um, his prescriptions filled. But when, you know, more, um, pills are needed, um, I think it's, that's when he kind of gets, um, kind of a, a roadblock in, in that and filling it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean I don't remember even being at a pharmacy where we were we would give out a ninety day supply of a C two. Um, I don't think that mm-hmm. was ever. Um, it, it would. Ha- I mean, it might have been something that was not a C two, but mm-hmm. that's definitely a, a very a very hard line to to play on. And and it's you know sorry to hear that the amount of stuff that your family has to go through. I mean, I can't even imagine um, the type of pain he's probably going through. And then kind of how you know seeing the, being the family member seeing that it's, it sounds like it's very tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's definitely um, tough to see that. And I'm grateful for people like you, you know, who, who are able to put um, people like me on the platform to just talk about these issues. And, you know, it seems as if you're you're really, you know, caring individual, especially when you I know you had experience with uh, with retail as well. So I'm sure you, um, you know, forwarded that same compassion to all your patients as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 hard because, you know, every we're all we're all healthcare providers on. Mm-hmm. And I think that we all care. And I think that in every situation, it's usually never a, a, a scenario where the person doesn't care. I think it's more so um, they're just as professionals, we're scared and we're concerned, you know. So I think exactly. I think that's what really causes these types of issues um, that come up. But um, but, you know, that's why we try to have these conversations and try to um, make, you know, make a give different perspectives of of the situations that patients might be going through. So mm-hmm. um, so you have you have a you know, a YouTube channel and, and you have a lot of videos that you're starting to put out. And, um, I wanted to, you know, because I don't know how often we'll be able to chat, uh, <laughs> and set up an episode, mm-hmm. but I wanted to kind of open the platform to, to see if there's any other messages that you want to get out or anything else that you'd like to talk about, um, that, uh, that you might be starting to do on your YouTube channel or that you're passionate about. Yeah. Um, a, a subject that I've been, um, we don't have to get too deep into it, but just briefly talking about it, the subject that I've been, um, studying about for a few years is the opioid crisis. And it's been um, big news, you know, all over the place about, you know, overdose deaths and things of that nature. And I think, you know, some of the stuff I talk about on my channel 
you know, some of the misconceptions with the opioid crisis, I think, tends to put um, an unwanted stigma on pain patients like my brother. So it's kind of harder for them to get their pain medications because of this unwanted stigma against them and, uh, you know, narcotics and overdose deaths. So I've started to talk about that on my channel, just, you know, just my perspective and bringing out information so people can maybe get a different perspective on, on you know, what's going on with the, the opioid crisis and, and why I think, you know, some of the, the policies and, and legislations that are happening behind it are not, you know, the most helpful towards chronic pain patients. So that's a, a topic that I'm passionate about and I've been you know, talk, uh, researching myself, you know, over the few years, ever since I started my rotation in, in the pain management, um, from what I was saying earlier, I've always sparked an interest in, in this opioid crisis. So, um, yeah, I, I think um, that's something I'm definitely passionate about and something that I'm going to continue to, um, you know, research and, and just, you know, understand more because, you know, it, it is affecting people like my brother. So, you know, I want to make sure I understand, you know, what's really going on. Uh, when we talk about, you know, the opioid crisis. So what, what is the state of the opioid crisis? Cause I, I know it has, <coughs> I want to say it's in, it's improved um, because of a lot of different crackdowns, especially, especially here in South Florida um, mm -hmm. with cracking down on like uh, kind of the pill mills and a lot of different regulations. Right. Um, so I want to say that it, it's definitely gotten much better than, than where we kind of started, but can you give mm -hmm. us maybe of a, like a, what, where do you think we're at now and what kind of work we have to be done? Yeah. Um, I think right now from just looking at Florida and looking at um, some of the statistics, I actually had a, a video about the opioid epidemic in Florida, and there was actually a, a pain report by the uh, Florida Department of Children and Health uh, for 2017 and 18, and they actually, you know, talked about um, some of the overdose deaths that we're seeing in Florida, and, you know, they mentioned that it's largely driven by illicitly manufactured fentanyl. So I think the state of the opioid crisis that we're in now is largely driven by illicit use. And I think that because of that, it's kind of affecting people who are using it um, legally, like my brother, people who need it for their pain syndromes. A lot of patients have, you know, very painful, you know, conditions. You know, some of them I've never, you know, even heard of myself, you know, like adhesive arachnoiditis or, you know, whatever um, pain syndrome they have. But the, the state of the opioid crisis, in my opinion, is largely being driven by an illicit um, um, illicit drug use and also polysubstance abuse. If you see the toxicology reports, we're seeing patients um, overdosing on multiple drugs, you know, uh, illicit benzos and cocaine, meth, heroin, fentanyl. You know, it's not someone just getting a prescription from the doctor and overdosing it on it. So. I think as far as, you know, cracking down, like you were saying before, cracking down on the pill mills and, and things of that nature is getting better. But I think now we're seeing more of an illicit drug use um, crisis now. So I think that a lot of the, the policies and, and things really need to focus on, on that instead of, you know, chronic pain patients, because chronic pain patients are now suffering. They're forcibly being tapered off their medications and things of that nature. So. I think we still have a lot of work to do as far as understanding what is the true nature of the crisis and right now and what is really driving the overdose deaths. And is there any uh, legislation that you are either that you know that it's coming in the pipeline or are concerned about or even some legislation that you're happy about 
Um, can you give us any any background or insight there? Yeah, I think um, the CDC opioid guidelines that came out in 2016, um, I know they're thinking about revising it and from what I was reading in 2021. But I think that um, piece of, of, of guideline, I think, really did a disservice to the opioid crisis. And I think it is since 2016, it's really affected patients. Um, and even they put out a statement, I think, this year that, you know, the guidelines were meant to be guidelines. It wasn't meant to be taken literally, but now you have a lot of insurance companies and a lot of pharmacies, you know, employing, you know, hard law based off of the CDC guidelines. And mm-hmm. um, I know that it's affected a lot of people. And I know that the chronic pain community would really love for those guidelines to be um, revoked. I would like to see them revoked, but I know they're going to be revising it. So um, it's going to be pretty interesting following that. Um, I think they're going to be revising it in 2021 from what I understand. So I'm definitely going to be following that and see, you know, what exactly they do um, with the, that piece of, of guidelines. So it's, it's going to be interesting what, what happens with that. What, what do you think was the most kind of damaging or, or, or the most problematic um, for the pain community? Um, I think the, the most problematic issue with the CDC guidelines is that it was based off of low tier evidence. So all the recommendations that they made were based off of grade three or four evidence. And also a lot of the people who made those recommendations were not um, chronic pain experts. And a lot of them were um, people who were, were a part of anti-opioid organizations. Oh, so that definitely was a conflict of interest, I think. So um, I think that's what made it really um, bad for the chronic pain community because it, it put arbitrary you know, numbers in there as far as you know opioid use and now, you know, you have pharmacies and doctor's offices and, and insurance companies going based off of those guidelines. And now chronic pain patients who have been stable on, you know, their dosages of, you know, opioids are now being, you know, tapered down because of these guidelines and things of that nature. So I think that was the biggest issue with it. The recommendations were, were you know, put in place by people who, who don't really, you know, um, like opioids or, you know, and then also... Um, the recommendations were, weren't really based off of good evidence. So that's why I'm, I'm pretty interested to see um, how they're going to revise it, in, you know, in the coming years. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's tough to hear, like, you know, how the, the things that are being influenced by certain things, there's always like a special interest involved, um, right, or, you right. know, or if there's a special interest involved, there's a particular, um, it leans a particular way versus the other. That's that definitely kind of hard to hear that that, that, that yeah. might have been a, a problem there. Um, what else? Any any other either legislation or things that you're happy or concerned about or any other messages? Um, as far as legislation and guidelines is concerned, that's um, the biggest thing right now that I've been following. Um, and I guess just any last words, um, I would just say that, you know, especially, you know, pharmacists in the retail setting, um, I would say that just for them to really, you know, get to know your pain patients. That That's, I think, the biggest takeaway message. Like, get to know your pain patients, get to know their doctors, and and get to get to know why they're they're in the, the state that they're in. Because, you know, a lot of the times they, they don't want to be on opioids. They, they don't want to come to the pharmacy, but they have a condition that they need to be treated. And a lot of the times they've tried everything else, and opioid therapy is the only thing that's able to get them a better quality of life. So... Um, I really think the take-home message is to really be empathetic and compassionate towards all patients, especially your chronic pain patients who come into the pharmacy. So 
that's, you know, all I'm saying with my message pretty much. And I think it's, I think maybe document, I'd add to that in saying that pharmacists should more document things more. Exactly. Um, if because, you have a documentation, yeah. yeah, that would be a lot better. Yeah. I mean, every, every pharmacist, um, every pharmacy management system has a note section in the patient profile. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and I think that's important for, you know, if you, if you're the manager at a location or, you know, the partner at a location and you're always there, but what happens when you go on vacation or if there's a floater and right, you're, exactly. you're, you're one of your regulars come in. Um, mm-hmm. or someone that you might've just met, uh, that you were going to start taking care of, but for some reason they came on a day you weren't there. Um, right. they get turned away and discouraged because the, you know, the new, the pharmacist there wasn't kind of used to that. So, exactly. um, I'd, I'd add to that, um, anything that I can help out with, um, or any questions for me specifically or anything that I can do to help anything that you're working on? Um, having me on this podcast, that's <laughs> the biggest <laughs> help you you've been. I mean, that's, you know, when you reached out to me, I was, I was, you know, very humbled that you would even, you know, take notice of, of a small person like me. <laughs> nah, man. Well, but, um, you caught my attention when uh, I, I, I think someone had liked it. I don't even think I was like following you at the time on Twitter, which is funny because mm-hmm. for anyone listening, we actually met on Twitter and this is how this mm-hmm. happened. But I think you had tweeted that you wanted to like, you're like, hey, TED Talk, like reach out to me. I'll do a TED Talk like right now or something like super right. confident. I was like, oh, man, this guy's <laughs> confident. He knows what he's doing. So I was like, <laughs> let's let's have him on. So. I'm glad we're able to do that. Yeah, I'm glad too. I'm I'm really a, a big fan of yours. I actually was watching uh, going on the offense of uh, for pharmacy here, and I, and I really enjoyed that as far as you know what you're doing as far as digital health and AI. And cause I'm not gonna lie, I'm, I'm I, I was scared of, of AI and replacing pharmacists, but when I when I listened to your po- to that episode, I'm like, you know, this this guy may be onto something <laughs> as far as you know how how AI and digital health can can be incorporated, you know, in pharmacy. So. I appreciate that. I appreciate you tuning in. And I think that that's exactly the message that I try to get out with a lot of these things is that every new piece of technology is always scary. Um, and it's just, mm-hmm. it's really up to us to embrace it because we can't stop it and figure mm-hmm. out how we can incorporate it into providing better care and making our careers better. So exactly. um, that's exactly the message I was trying to get out. All right. Uh, wrap this up. What's the best way that people can get in contact with you, whether it be on social media, YouTube or, or your email? Yeah. Email is, um, w-a-m-a-r-q-u-a at usf.edu and that's my um, email that i check uh, regularly and then also um i'm pretty active on twitter and youtube under the same handle um ghanaboy.farmd so um you can you know contact me on there on my youtube and twitter and email Great. I will link all of that stuff into the show notes um, for anyone that's listening and can't write it all down. Um, William, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your insight. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Again, I'm going to post um, all of William's information in the show notes. Um, please make sure to connect with him on social media um, and follow along with the messaging that he's putting out. Um, I think it's important um, for us to kind of get these different perspectives um, about patients that we're treating. Uh, as always, thank you so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. Make sure to also connect with me on any of your favorite social media platforms. Um, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, um, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, I'd be more than happy to talk about any of the episodes we do, or if you have any recommendations for episodes, that'd be great as well. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Pharmacy.